This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's getting really hot in here. It's so hot. It's Getting Hot in Here is a programme about giving voice to the people in our community working for environmental and social change. The climate emergency is the defining issue of our lifetime. Our aim is to bring you content that helps us understand the climate crisis and explore actions to help us all to save ourselves. Aotearoa New Zealand has a wealth of knowledge, skills and people passionate about protecting and enhancing our natural environment. This episode of It's Getting Hot in Here, we feature two of those voices, Amanda Larson, an activist with Greenpeace, and Dr Mike Joy, a scientist and founder of Better Futures Forum, who spoke at a hui called Alternative Aotearoa, working towards the environmental and economic transformation of Aotearoa New Zealand. So we're now part of that which seems to tie in quite nicely to our next section of the day, which is looking at environmental solutions, which seems to have permeated this whole hui right from the beginning, right? You can't separate any of these things out. Uh, so climate change and its effects are really the, one of the defining, the defining concern of our time. Our first speaker for this section is Swedish-born, Tāmaki Makauro-based, uh, Amanda Larson. She's a climate and energy campaigner who's been leading Greenpeace New Zealand's policy work on the COVID-19 recovery. Nau mai haramai kia Amanda. Ho mai te pakipaki. Kia ora. Tēnā koutou katoa. Um, I just want to start by acknowledging the very incredibly powerful rangatahi voices that we have just listened to. And um, I give you permission and, in fact, encourage you to completely zone out during my talk or go have a cup of tea and reflect on what they have just said because it's more important than what I am about to say. So if you stand up and walk out and have a cup of tea, I will clap my hands for you rather than be offended. Um, so, um, no we tana aho, uh, ko Amanda Larson toko ingoa, uh, ke Greenpeace aho e mahiana. Um, I'm from Sweden, as was mentioned. Um, Sweden, which unfortunately has the um, fame of being one of the countries which has most badly mismanaged the COVID-19 crisis, um, and is one of the reasons that I feel incredibly fortunate to be here in Aotearoa. Uh, I am a guest here, um, and I, I feel very lucky to be here. Um, and I also want to acknowledge that, like myself, there are many people in this room um, who have family members or friends in other parts of the world where COVID is very much still ravaging people's lives um, and just want to you know, take, take some time to acknowledge that while we're past the worst of it here, I hope there's, um, it's certainly a crisis that is ongoing. Um, and as we know, um, COVID spread because of international air travel, which is the privilege of the wealthy. Um, one of the reasons why Sweden has so much COVID-19 is Sweden is a wealthy country where people travel a lot. They went skiing in Italy. And there you go. That's what happens. Then you get government mismanagement and then you get 
really poor outcomes. Um, but as we also know, the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected those who are already marginalized, people in poverty, people of color, people with disabilities. Um, so in some ways, it's very similar to the climate crisis in the sense that it is being caused or the, you know, the spread of the illness is, is the result of the act actions of the privileged, um, but the outcomes are disproportionately affecting those who are already oppressed and marginalized in our society. Um, so I think that's an important lesson for us um, of the interconnections between health and the way we treat the natural world. Um, one of the lessons that COVID-19 has taught us <clears throat> excuse me, is that when we destroy nature, we open the door to harmful diseases that put people's health at risk and in extreme cases like COVID, um, cause our societies and our economies to grind to a halt. But the opposite is also true, um, that we are part of nature, and when we treat it well, nature looks after us. Because nature, when it is healthy and functioning, limits disease transfer. There are natural barriers that prevent diseases from transferring from animals to humans, as we saw happened in, in the case of COVID-19. Ecosystems that are healthy naturally restrain the transfer of these diseases, but when they are degraded and when they are broken down, these natural barriers are stressed and eroded. And we're seeing impacts like COVID-19 as a result of the increasing human encroachment into wildlife habitats. We're coming into closer contact with diseases that were previously unknown to our human immune systems. And the majority of new infectious diseases that are affecting human beings come from wildlife. Um, and that's what we're seeing more and more of um, the more we encroach on nature. So I think it's becoming increasingly clear from COVID-19 that human health is interlinked with animal health is interlinked with environmental health. And this is a lesson that Western institutions need to learn. Because as many of our speakers have already pointed out, this is well-known in other worldviews. It is our Western worldview that has forgotten the interconnections between human health, environmental health, and animal health. Um, and so we often talk about solutions. We're here to talk about solutions today, and we often think about solutions in our Western mindset in a really technological sense, and I just want to um, acknowledge um, the previous speaker saying the knowledge is already here. Indigenous knowledge has been here for millennia, and our job is to step back as Western institutions and make space for knowledge that is um, already existing in our societies to come forward and find solutions. Um, so it's clear that restoration and regeneration of nature is an investment in public health. And mitigating climate change is also an investment in public health. Um, because as we've seen in the, previous, in the previous presentations, climate change is only going to exacerbate infectious disease transmission. Um, so what are we as, as, Green, as Greenpeace advocating for? Um, Broadly, we're advocating for four overarching transitions in how we as a society relate to nature. And one of those, and one of the most important ones here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is how we relate to nature through agriculture. And replacing the current industrial agriculture system, which is based on land theft, um, with a regenerative farming model that is based and rooted in um, indigenous practices where people have farmed in harmony with nature for millennia. 
Regenerative farming involves growing a large diversity of crops, plants, and animals all together. It replaces synthetic inputs like nitrogen fertilizer um, with practices that mimic natural systems instead of treating the land like a mine that we are extracting things from. It's about treating the land like an ecosystem that we are part of. Um, It uses these natural systems to create access to nutrients, to water, to pest control, which are all required for growth. And it stores water in the soils instead of needing to build massive massive irrigation dams. Um, It stores carbon in the soil to mitigate climate change. It improves soil health and brings back biodiversity. Now, here in New Zealand, many farmers already want to make the switch but lack support. In fact, in New Zealand, we're one of... just a few countries that has very little in the way of support um, for farmers to transition to organic practices or more sustainable practices. Um, And the irony is, and I know we're not here to talk about things in a capitalist frame, but the irony is that um, moving towards a more regenerative model adds value to the farm. It makes our livestock happier and healthier. It makes the products that we are marketing to the rest of the world more attractive. But you can ignore all of that because it's important because of, you know, we need to protect the earth in general. It's not important because of the need for growth. So what does, what does this look like in practice? I know I can talk about this in a um, kind of philosophical sense, but what is regenerative agriculture and what are we calling on the government and political parties to do about it? Um, firstly, we're calling for one-off grant funding for agroforestry, cover cropping, and reduced tillage practices. Um, We're calling for investments in plant-based food manufacturing facilities so that we can create plant-based manufacturing at scale with value-added food, fiber, and timber processing facilities local, um, close to farms. We're calling for investment in research and development and training and advisory services to actually support farmers to switch to regenerative. Um, And we're calling for organic compost and uh, and seed production facilities as an alternative to synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. So agriculture is the big shift here in New Zealand, and and I could stop there, but there are plenty of other things that we can do. Um, The second transition that we're calling for is the replacement of fossil fuels like oil, gas, and coal with locally produced and locally owned renewable energy. We can power our homes and our transport systems and our businesses using the sun that is shining down on our roofs. I know you know this. Um, We can power our homes and businesses with the wind that blows through the countryside. Instead of importing oil um, that is linked to conflict, instead of mining for coal and gas from the land or from the bottom of the sea, And distributed energy technology allows for communities and households to own and manage their own energy instead of being beholden to the whims of energy companies. Like as someone mentioned, uh, Meridian recently um, dumping a load of water so that they could charge you all higher prices for your energy. And the great thing about this clean energy technology, I mean, sometimes I don't really understand why politicians don't listen to the evidence, but that's not how politics works, is it? Um, But solar and wind are some of the biggest job creators in the world, and in the U.S. they are literally the biggest job creators. So we have enormous potential to boost employment in regions around the country um, and in towns and cities all over the country. Uh, The third transformation we're calling for is the replacement of unnecessary single-use products like plastic bottles with reusables and refillables. Um, With the exception of products required by um, people with disabilities, most single-use plastics are replaceable with alternatives. And we're in this post-COVID situation where we need to create employment, and this is a jobs-rich industry 
just like um, the clean energy industry I already mentioned. And we're in this unfortunate position now where we're exporting, we're, we're unable to export plastics to other parts of the world where they are processed for us. Um, so we've got all this plastic piling up in our landfills and ending up in um, waterways. So the obvious solution is get rid of the single-use plastics um, and switch to refillable systems, which are jobs-rich. And then finally, I just want to end on shifting our mindset from a mindset of extraction to a mindset of restoration and investing in the large-scale restoration of nature, from replanting of native forests to revitalizing wetlands to restoring mussel and shellfish beds and harbors. There are so many opportunities to choose from. These are all solutions that are jobs-rich. These are all solutions that... Um, you know, we, we need to address the looming crisis and the crisis that are already here with us. Um, so, you know, there really isn't any reason not to. And someone asked me recently if I was losing hope because I hadn't seen a response from the government that was visionary. And actually, I feel like this post-COVID era has given me more hope than ever because I've seen so many people such as yourselves come forward with amazing ideas that are well-researched, that are well-evidenced, that are visionary and exciting. And our politicians are basically standing at an open door and not yet walking through it. And we just need to shove them through that door, I think. So, um, so thanks for listening to this today. Um, and thank you so much for having me here as well. From extraction to restoration, from hope to hope, which is action. Um, going to invite Mike Joy up. He is one of the founders of Better Futures Forum and Things that I don't know what they mean. A freshwater ecologist, environmental scientist and activist. Nga mahi, Mike. Um, thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. So many people have inspired me in this room. Um, great to be with Jennifer and Julia. Uh, John Minto's been a hero of mine since longer than I can remember. So, so nice to be here for, for John. Um, or be invited by John. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm talking about the Better Futures Forum. Um, I'm not really good at talking for organisations, I tend to talk for myself, but I, I, I want to you know, say there's a huge amount of work being done in the, in the Better Futures Forum by a bunch of people who have kind of come together around um, just, it was a response to the COVID lockdown, initially myself and Catherine Knight, the environmental historian, who thought we were just so shocked by how suddenly the impossible was possible and change happened and we and we couldn't believe it and we thought we should you know try to take advantage of this and and, and make things happen and and i guess that then a, then a bunch of other people have have come in round us and um, i think that the thing that we said that we had in common for a start was that we were systems thinkers and i think that's a that's a nice western science word for indigenous knowledge in mataranga maori and and that well, because as an ecologist, I knew that everything is interlinked, and I don't think there's ever been a difference between my Western science ecology and, and that I can find between an Indigenous people's worldview. So I think it's been talked about a lot today, and it's really, um, it's really part of, of the, the kind of thinking that we have to have. And I, I kind of worry that some of the mahi today has been around, we have to get over this COVID thing, and then we get going again, you know. 
This, this COVID thing is a really gentle little clip around the ear. It might seem horrible to lots of people, but what we'll have if we don't respond the right way to this is going to be way, way worse than that. Um, I want to I quote from, there's a, there's a, a bunch of scientists, um, a coalition of them, the, the last count was well over 20,000 of them that have put together this dire warning, a letter to humanity, which is a, replay, a follow-up to a letter in the 70s. If the world doesn't act soon, there will be catastrophic biodiversity loss and untold amounts of human misery. And that acting means a huge amount of change in our lives. I mean, we, but Amanda, you know, I totally agree with, with everything that, that Greenpeace is up to. And I, I, I'd, you know, she mentioned that, that link between what we're doing and, you know, the increased risk of, of more things like COVID happening. Just to remind people who haven't heard it, probably everyone in this room does know it, but as an indication of how much we humans dominate this planet, that 97% of the biomass of animals, of terrestrial life, of macrobiome, anything apart from micro, um, the microbiome, 97% of it is us and the animals we farm to eat and the pets that we have. That leaves 2 or 3% for the wild animals on this planet. So you think about how far we've overshot. That is, to me, one of the starkest things we have to remember. Um, I think that, uh, for me, I'm in a pretty negative space around uh, democracy and government in New Zealand. Having spent 20 years of my life working alongside some fantastic people to raise the profile of freshwater crisis in New Zealand, to see an election that many people agree this government got in, or the last government got lost because of their failures around freshwater, to have multiple surveys show that 80% of New Zealanders think that freshwater, the crisis, is our biggest environmental issue, to then have this government totally fail to, to set up working groups that I was part of and many others, two years' work, unpaid work, to, to come up with what we need to do around fresh water and have it totally ignored. And don't believe the bullshit that they've been saying that they are because they're doing nothing about fresh water. There's been no change whatsoever that will have any meaning. So, so you know, I'm angry. You should be angry. This is what happened to democracy. We gave them the mandate and they failed. I mean, right up until a few months ago, I would be telling everyone, Look, you change from the ground up, you, you get the word out, everybody knows what's going on, the government will respond. Well, sorry, and, and I was wrong, apologies to all those people that I said that to. It doesn't. Look what happened, it failed. So we, we, have, to, we have to change that. We, we are in the bottom 20% of the countries in the world on environmental achievement or failure. You know, we, we're not the top, we're not green. Forget the Yale bullshit study that put us at 40th. We're about 160th in the world out of 180 countries. We're right in the bottom there on, on, on just about everything you can measure that we do with the environment, including greenhouse gas uh, emissions per capita. So we need to change really, really quickly. One of the things that's worrying me is this um, just transitions idea. I mean, totally support a just transition. But what I'm seeing, and I'm, and I'm seeing it come from industry, is they're setting up this situation where, and I'm worried about the unions here and their involvement in this as well, that 
we can't make the changes if it impacts poor people, right? Or, or you know, any group who are going to be worse off because of the changes that we make. We, that's, that's inequality. That is a separate issue. We have to deal to inequality. Because if we lump those two together, which is what the industry is trying to make us do, and, and I see a lot of memes to see that's being sort of naively taken up by people, is that we'll never make the necessary changes because it's always going to impact on the poorest. That's not an excuse not to do it. We need to fix the situation of the inequality and do the other thing, not link them together and, and have that stop us from doing anything. We need to, and I just worry that that's being kind of taken as one and, and it shouldn't be. Um, <clears throat> I was going to talk about regenerative agriculture, but um, Amanda did a fantastic job of that. So, you know, I mean, we're, there's a, there's a bunch of things that we're working on within the Better Futures Forum, and we have we have some really good people and some really good ideas coming about uh, about that. One of the the big strong points that's come out from our uh, Mataranga Māori um, group is the need for constitutional state change. Um, one of the early speakers, I forget her name, was talking about that. Um, yeah, that that that. that, that the constitutional tino rangatira change that we have to have—that's going to be core to any of any change at that level. We have to we have to start at, at that at that point. Um, you know, whatever we do, we're going to have to somehow move away from this global economy about our connection to that global economy. I mean, when when Amanda was talking about those choices that people make and about the regenerative farming and how it makes our our, our farming have more value, when what, what currently happens is 90% or, or roughly of the milk that we send away is just powder, it's going off to replace breast milk or end up in junk food. It's not something people are going to make a choice on. It's not something that has a value. It's something that we've got to stop doing. So that's, that, there's that, that kind of link there. We need to... We, I'm, I, the other thing that has to be changed is we need to pick up our game on energy literacy. And there's a, there's a couple of issues to bring up here. GDP and The Economist, and Jeff will probably talk about this later, but replace the word GDP in your mind with GDB, gross domestic burning. Every dollar of GDP, GDP requires fossil fuel burning. You, you go back over history, look at every graph you'll find, there is this absolute tight, locked-in link between GDP and burning fossil fuels. And we have to, you know how, how the government panics if we have a, a, you know, a GDP growth rate that's to, you know, less than 2%, they start to panic. We have to reduce greenhouse gas, gas emissions by 15%, roughly, 10 to 15% to have a hope of having a future. When those two are locked together, that means decreasing GDP of 10%. How are we going to do that? We have to think about that, that, that kind of reality. And the other part of that is when don't get caught in the trap of giving, just giving quotes about fantastic new technology that's going to save the world, a whole lot of solar panels or something like that. Because all that does is worse than denial is that people think this magic technology is going to mean that we don't have to change. There will be a place for that, but we're going to have to massively change how we live to, to bring in that kind of thing. And I've run out of time. Thanks very much. Yeah, got a lot of speakers. So, uh, look, just briefly though, why you mentioned before that the um, 
the thing about the fresh water and that you thought that was going to go through, you gave them the evidence, it was all put there. Why didn't it happen? Oh, it didn't happen because of the power of the ag industry. So the Ministry for the Environment, and this is getting filmed and I'll probably get sued or something, but <laughs> the Ministry for the Environment set up these working groups, Kahui Wai Māori Science Technical Advisor group, Advisory Group and the Leaders Group, told us we were it, we were going to shape this new national policy statement. We discovered that they had had 16 secret meetings with the ag industry, only because we got leaked it through a completely different network from Fed Farmers got too excited and shared it. So while pretending and playing a game with us that we are changing it, that Fed Farmers guys are skiting that they're writing the policy for fresh water. So it was a fait accompli. Yeah. So the consultation... The power of, yeah, the consultation was the box-ticking game that they play, like the welfare working group and the tax working group. Let's pretend that we're doing this, but we're doing this other thing. Build up. Yeah. For my Paki Paki to Mike and Better Futures Forum. Woza. You've been listening to It's Getting Hot in Here on Plains FM. If you want to check out the podcast, go to the Plains FM website. And we'll finish up today with a song that was sent in to us with the message to consider the children. Here's Fred Lessman and the Backroad Warriors, the children of our children. Yeah, the empire's crumbling like they always have before. Orwell had it figured out in 1984. There's fire on the mountain and ashes on the shore. There's a crack in our foundation. It's gonna reach the core And your old men call the shots You always want more You're calling in your markers With weapons made for war But it's the children of your children You should be frightened Okay, with air for them to breathe.
fields in which to play.